word of God set to music, and then some silence. Lord, we uh, thank you for life, and we're, we're grateful for a year uh, under our belt, 2017, and uh, we've made it through physically and spiritually and mentally. We're, we're uh, holding it together because of you and your strength, and we pray that you will continue to sustain us as we seek you in spirit and in truth, uh, trying to love uh, in our walk and uh, appreciate all you do for us and your uh, uh, benevolence and your generosity as you look upon us with mercy and grace and love and forgiveness as we seek you. Revelation's been heavy, Lord, and we're in it, and we just pray you'll keep uh, teaching us the things you want us to know to take from it as we uh, hope to conclude it in the year of 2018. So be with us now as we reflect upon your words set to music. In Jesus' name, amen. One, two, three. Take it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink. in my 
Hey, before we move on to chapter 14, let's do an onboard review of the 10 prophecies uh, regarding the beast from the sea and the connection to uh, Roman uh, Emperor Nero. And uh, we've spent three weeks, I think, covering a lot of this, but review is necessary because it plays such an important role in the eschatological views of uh, the faith. So, the beast was, number one, to have how many horns? Ten horns. A French horn, a, oh, just kidding. Uh, and those horns would give the beast uh, power and authority to persecute the saints. Uh, that's what scripture says. The Roman Empire, uh, we know, contained ten senatorial provinces. And uh, the governors of each one granted their authority to Rome. Sorry, bad habit. And also exercised authority on Rome's behalf. Uh, this included aiding Nero in his persecution of the saints and carrying out the Roman war against Israel, which resulted in the burning of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So um, that is the ten horn, and that's the fulfillment view of who the ten horns represent. The ten senatorial provinces that were given power to persecute the saints. Number two, the beast had seven heads. <clears throat> and um, we talked about, to John it was explained that the seven heads represented not only the seven mountains on which the woman is seated, that's how it's described there, but also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, I meaning in John's day there was one emperor or king who was, and the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he will remain only a little while. That's how it was described to John. And the way that we have talked about this, the seven uh, heads, is Rome is one city that is famous, I had to learn this, um, in history for <clears throat> its seven mountains. And the first century Rome celebrated the feast of the seven-hilled city. And so according to Josephus, Diocassius, Suetonius, and other historians, the first five Roman emperors or kings, remember how John described it, and we've covered this, so this is just review, uh, were first uh, Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar, second Augustus, third Tiberius, third Caligula, uh, Julius Caesar, Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius. The sixth was Nero, 54 AD to 68 AD, and the next emperor was Galba, who reigned only six months before he was murdered. So that fits what he said, seven kings, five of whom have fallen, those first five who we talked about, one is, in John's day, that was Nero, and then the other who has not yet come, Galba, and when he comes he will remain only a little while, he was only emperor for six months. So that fulfills, I think, in my estimation, the definition of the seven heads. The next one is the beast was to have a mouth as a lion. And we've talked all about uh, how uh, in uh, Roman literature and things, these uh, identities of the beast were associated with different characters or animals. But the thing that's most telling is that Paul, referring to his trial before Nero in 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17, says, quote, in 2 Timothy, that he was rescued... Uh, 
in this trial where he testified before Nero from the lion's mouth. So we have a fulfillment there again in Nero and, and, and in the lion's mouth. The fourth one is the beast's head was to receive uh, a mortal wound. One of the heads uh, received mortal wound and the, the beast was to recover miraculously from this wound to the head. And it would cause the whole earth, which we have interpreted all of Israel, to marvel as they followed the beast. That's Revelation 13. So, <clears throat> Nero committed suicide in June of 68 AD, bringing an end to the sustained bloodline of the emperors in Rome since it had become an empire. And remember, we talked about two ways in which Revelation discusses uh, this mortal wound. One is in the individual Nero, and the other one is Nero being represented by the empire itself. So, uh, and so we have to remember that both of those applications seem to be in play here in Revelation. Where the empire received a wound to its head and then miraculously recovered was when Nero killed himself. And the whole empire went into chaos because it was believed this is the end of the empire. There's no more bloodline. And so we're done for and chaos ensued throughout the whole Roman empire. Josephus says that Nero's death was followed by chaos, civil war, causing the empire to nearly collapse, and every part of the inhabitable earth, that's a quote from Josephus, under the Romans, was in an unsettled and tottering condition. Uh, and so uh, that's in his wars. The next three uh, emperors, Galba, Otho, and Vitellius, each reigned considerably less than a year, and each tried desperately to resurrect Nero's image and authority. And uh, it was only when Vespasian came into power in December of 69 AD that Rome stabilized and was, then became more powerful than it had ever been. That's the idea that the empire was wounded in the head and then rose back to life. And that was the whole thing. Who can overcome this beast who receives such a wound? Then we also know that when Nero killed himself, it wasn't to the head, but it was a sword to the neck. That's how he did it. And so uh, that fulfills another part that I think we're going to talk about. Um, number five says the whole earth, and remember in Revelation, earth is uh, symbolized as Israel, and the ocean or rivers or water is symbolic of the Gentile nations flooding in to destroy the earth. That's how uh, we, we take that from Daniel chapter 7. And we extrapolate what it says in Daniel chapter 7 about this. So that's how we read what it's saying in Revelation when it says the sea, the monster came out of the sea. That's one type of Gentile beast. And if the uh, beast came out of the land, then it was a Jew in all probability. So the whole earth would worship the beast, number five, extolling it as incomparable, overwhelmingly power. Who can oppose it? Only those whose names were written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb uh, that was slain would not worship the beast. So those who wouldn't worship beast slain, those who would were not. That's how they uh, stayed alive. Revelation chapter 13, verses uh, 4, 8. Um, 
Nero received extravagant worship, demanded by uh, and received during and after his reign, and this include offering sacrifices to the spirit of Nero, even, uh, in the public square after his death. And we talked about that. Uh, one statue of Nero was uh, created that was 110 feet tall. And the people uh, and with coins, and we talked all about how the, stamped on the coins, it called him um, Almighty God. It called him Savior. And he was hailed as Apollo, Hercules, and the one from the beginning of time. This is a man. So we know he had all these powers and accolades heaped upon him. And then last week, I'm not going to cover it today, I don't think, but we talked about how uh, he was one evil dude. If you want to recite the evilness of Nero, go back to last week and watch that uh, sermon or teaching where we talked about what Nero actually was about, according to the historical record, and it was unbelievable. Uh, then the, the beast was given authority, number five, I don't even remember what we should call that. Uh, we should call it that the whole earth would marvel. And uh, the whole earth would marvel. We interpret through language that Revelation used as Israel. And then number six is um, the beast was given authority to make war on the saints for a period of 42 months. And John tells the churches, uh, the seven churches, this is how long you are going to suffer at the hands of this insanely demonic, evil uh, emperor. And, uh, and then we also learned that um, his authority would cover every tribe, nation, and people. And we talked about what that was in the Greek. And so here's the, one of the most amazing facts about the Revelation comparison to Nero, is that he began to persecute the Christians throughout the Roman Empire mid-November 64 AD. Historical fact. And uh, the persecution ended when he committed si uh, suicide, June of 68 A.D. Uh, thus, he made war on the saints for a period of 42 months. Exactly. Exactly. And this was given to John in the Revelations to tell the saints then, this is what's going to happen and you're going to have to deal with it. And we talked about how God allowed the saints, the believers, those who wouldn't worship Nero, those who stuck to their faith, to be killed. And remember, the figures were somewhere between 100,000 Christians to 250,000, which is a real extreme number. But 100,000 seems to be more in the range of how many Christians were boiled in oil and lit on fire and hung and everything else that he did to them. And we also pointed out that how that would thin the herd of Christians tremendously. So at the destruction of 70 AD, the bride left in the whole Roman Empire and in Israel would have been substantially reduced because of the persecution. And therefore, if they were taken at that time and rescued from the deluge that came in 70 AD, they wouldn't be missed because there wouldn't be that many of them as Jesus had always subscribed. There, the strays getting there's way, few be there that find it, and things like that. All right, number seven, the saints were called to endure and remain faithful in light of the fact that the beast often wielded the sword 
uh, and would then kill himself by the sword. Revelation 13 says that the sword would be in place, and because he put it in place, that the beast would die by the sword, which we know Nero did. Number eight, uh, the beast from the sea would be given much support from a second beast from the earth. We started talking about this the week before and last week. Who's this new beast? What's this about? And it would compel the earth and its inhabitants, Israel and the inhabitants of Israel, to worship the first beast. And we talked about who this beast from the sea versus the beast from the land are. Beast from the sea is going to be Nero, Gentile, beast from the land, who was it? And there were four main ideas of who possibly or what possibly that could be. And so at an image of the first beast would be given breath so that it might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the beast to be slain. That's Revelation 13, 11 through 15. So we read... Um, Notes from early church fathers, uh, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, uh, Irenaeus wrote of Sa Simon Magnus and being able to bring statues back to life in the first century. And uh, it has been said that during this era, statues were deemed able to speak and perform miracles. The Roman historian uh, Dio Cassius records how, uh, in detail how a foreign king Tiridates literally and publicly worshipped Nero and his images in one particular conference. We covered that. And a number of ancient modern historians insist that those who refuse to do so, and we gave a specific example at that time, uh, during Nero's reign and after were executed. So that was what that was all about. Uh, number seven is that you would be compelled to worship the beast. Now I know today that we talk about you're going to be compelled to uh, worship the beast when the Antichrist and the beast come and we're going to get a mark in our skin or the tattoos or the subcutaneous uh, digital things and all that. But we're taking the history and saying it was completed. Number nine, two more. No one would be able to buy or sell unless they had the mark uh, and we talked about what that mark was in the Greek, and uh, it would be either in their right hand, uh, me, and which we interpreted because they actually did have a piece of paper with a stamp of Nero's empire that they would carry about to show that they had allegiance with him, and they would show that, and they would be able to engage in commerce. Without that paper, you could not do it, and you could not do that as a Christian. And so if you didn't have that karagma, is what we called it, in your, in your hand, the right hand is what it says, you wouldn't be able to buy or sell. In the forehead could be an allusion to the Jews of the Old Testament who wrote uh, the words of uh, the Old Testament and they bound them to their wrists and to the frontlets of their forehead. And there could be something about that. See uh, Marvin Pate, we read this from a book that they, he and uh, Calvin Haynes wrote that Nero received a certificate or those who worship Nero, not Nero, uh, received a certain certificate or mark, karagma, the same word that is used in Revelation 13. It's the same thing. They received it. They called it that in secular history. It's the same mark that is used in Revelation 13. And uh, 
Richard Anthony also recalled, quote, all those under the jurisdiction of Rome were required by law to publicly proclaim their allegiance to Caesar by burning a pinch of incense and declaring Caesar is Lord. Upon compliance with this law, the people were given a papyrus document, also called a libellus, which they were required to present when they were either stopped by Roman police or attempting to engage in commerce in the Roman marketplace, increasing the difficulty of buying or selling without it. So that was the ninth one. And then last week, we got into number 10, the grand poopah of all things, the things that make up for uh, horror films and, and bikers' tattoos, some bikers' tattoos, the mark of the beast, 666. And we uh, said that in that Revelation chapter uh, 13, verse 18, that John says, uh, he, he says, calculate, find the solution. He tells his reader, do the math. You know how to figure this out. These le- this revelation I'm receiving here on Patmos is being taken and it's going through, in all probability, Roman soldiers' hands. If I write out that this beast's name is Nero, I'm going to be in trouble and so is anybody who has this revelation. But if I put it in this this certain code that you would understand, gematra, a Hebrew gematria, you will be able to take what I say, look at the number 666, and you will be able to figure out who I'm talking about. And then we went through and we showed that Nero Caesar uh, is uh, the 666, and we spelled that out on the board last week. We also showed in the Latin, 666 gematria doesn't work. Only in the Hebrew does it work. Okay? The Latin doesn't work. Later on, we had manuscripts uh, that said 616 is the mark you, uh, that was in the beast. And, and people would say, why do we have a different number here? And it's believed because the scribes said 666 is no longer computable by the people because all the Jews, they're gone, really. We don't have the converts from Judaism coming into the faith, but we have people reading this and they're seeking understanding. Let's change it to a Latin reader's understanding. They changed it to 616, which computes to uh, Nero Caesar again. So that's why there is that idea out there. There are two uh, different things. So that's... Those are the 10 uh, things that we talked about. And um, to me, even just those things added in with everything else we've covered, it really puts a dent in the whole futuristic view. Unless we have, we're on a cycle. And I have to admit the cycle is they went through this initially with the Roman Empire. It's a historical thing that revisits. And you will go through it again. And now we're going to go through it in our age with a new emperor, a new uh, Osama bin Laden, or I mean, uh, what's his name? Obama. Obama is the guy who is the beast, or some new guy rising up out of Germany, or, and you're going to have to receive the computer chip now instead of the kerygma in your hand. It's going to be actually be in your hand, and it's a historical cycle that goes on. That is a view that some Christians take. And then, of course, there's the futurist view that none of this has application to the historic uh, secular world, but it's all waiting to happen now. And those people, um, at this point in my life, are absolutely nuts. I'm sorry. They just, just, uh, you can't, you cannot read that book and be honest with everything that's said and say, yeah, it wasn't, none of this has happened yet. 
I mean, I, I just don't know how it can, can possibly happen. But that's my humble opinion. It's gently delivered. Okay. Uh, uh, chapter 14. So much to understand. So much to consider. And as usual, we read our chapter together, and then we'll go verse by verse. So let's read chapter 14 together. I'll be reading the King James. Then I looked, John again, and lo, on Mount Zion stood a lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are chaste. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits, for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are spotless. That 144,000 right now, that is one magnificent crew, isn't it? I mean, they haven't defiled themselves with women. They have been redeemed from mankind. They're the first fruits of the Lamb of God and of God and the Lamb. And in their mouth was no deceit or deception. That is a powerful group of people that are being gathered here, either in our future or back in the past. And I, verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim those who dwell on the earth, to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment is come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the fountains of water. Another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, great. She who made all nations drink the wine of her impure passion. And another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or in his hand, he shall drink of the wine of God's wrath, poured unmixed into the cup of his anger, and he shall be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives a mark in its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from here on out. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and lo, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like the Son of Man, with a cr golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat upon the cloud, quote, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe, end quote. 
So he who sat upon the clouds swung his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. And another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Then another angel came from the altar, and the angel who has power over fire, and he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, quote, put your sickle, put in your sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine from the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle to the earth and gathered the vintage of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's in the Greek. So, let's get back to it. Now we begin the sojourn, 14. John, then I looked, verse 1, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So where those under Nero would receive Nero's name or mark, the mark of 66 or whatever the mark was on their for the karagma in their right hand or their forehead, we now have another group who receives something different in their forehead. Those have followed Nero, but these have followed God and Christ, his son. That's why their names are written on their forehead. It's, that's who's on their mind, not the kingdom of the earth. So what do you recall from Revelation chapter 7 about the 144,000? Uh, anything? See if it comes to mind. I'll give you a quick reminder. First of all, they were sealed from the wrath to come. So we know all the way back in chapter 7, wrath was coming, wrath is coming. The 144,000 were sealed from it. They are called the servants of God. They, we came to see that they were 12,000 from the 12 tribes of Israel. 12,000 times 12 is the 144,000. And they are sealed on their foreheads, which we said was perhaps representational of them having God and his law upon their minds and hearts. Now, take note of the similarity of this first verse and what it contains, not exactly, with Hebrews 12, 22 through 23. One of my favorite groups of scripture to quote from in uh, the New Testament, Hebrews 12, because there God says, but to you, lean the believers, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, Remember, this is Hebrews, so it's talking to Hebrew believers. It's talking to Jews who have converted to Christ. But you, Hebrews, have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This was the writer of Hebrews talking to those holy Jews of the 144,000, I believe, and telling them, describing who they are. Some suggest that the vision uh, of chapter 14 reflects the contents of Psalm chapter 2, which we've gone to several times in our study, where it says, The kings and rulers vainly rebelling against and resisting God and the Messiah, but declares that God laughs at their futile efforts to unseat him uh, before his uh, holy position. 
So God tells them in verse 6 there in chapter 2 of Psalm, Yet I have set my kingdom on my holy hill of Zion. So chapter 2 of Psalm seems to be talking about this kingdom and the inhabitants. And the efforts to throw that kingdom and get rid of it are God laughs at. You know, men make plans and God laughs. This is kind of where we get that idea from. Psalm 2, God laughs at the plans here. So in, it's one of the, one of the places. So in Revelation, despite all the efforts of the dragon and the beast to eliminate the bride, to destroy the church, I mean, Nero has been given 42 months to do it, and he does a pretty darn good job. I mean, he wastes a lot of Christians, but he cannot touch the 144,000 who have the seal in their forehead. And again, because the rhetoric or the passage in Revelation smacks of what the writer of Hebrews says to Jews, I believe that we have a consistency between God speaking to those who are faithful, who are his, and saying, I have sealed you. You will not be touched by uh, this guy. So I love the victory presented here and believe it's emblematic of God having the victory over all things, laughing when people try or beings try to uh, stop him. Then at verse 2 through 5, it's a big chunk. Let's read what it says in Revelation 14. John says, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. Again, like and like, not literally. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now remember way back in the early chapters of Revelation, we talked about the elders gathered around the throne and the living creatures underneath the throne. Well, this is taking us back to that. No one could learn that song except, read this, the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits of God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So, we learn more about the 144,000 here in chapter 14. It's a major description. Now, the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that on earth, since William Taz Russell has brought forth the truth, that there have been members of the 144,000 amongst their troop. And I've asked many uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, have you met them? And they say, yeah, I've met a few. And how do you know? And they say, they just know. And, uh, and they show up, and they're part of the congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses, but they will say, I've had a revelation, I'm part of the 144,000. Um, so that's an example of how we can just take it and start using it kind of any way we want. But if we're going to look at really what it says about them, this is really unusual. I guess I need to start asking them a few other questions, like, are they married? And uh, have, uh, are they, have they followed the lamb wherever he goes? Things like that. But the descriptions are one, they are standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion at his return. So we know that. They have the name of the Lamb and his Father's name written on their foreheads. Again, it's not literal in all probability. Could be, but in all probability it means on their mind. They were redeemed from the earth. They and only they could learn the new song that was being sung. Now, um, we'll get to that. 
they're virgins, having never been defiled by a woman. I'd like to see a hundred <laughs> guys, not 144,000. I'd like to see a hundred on this earth today. Okay, maybe a hundred's a little bit tight. A thousand. A thousand men on this earth today who meet this qualification, or who will. How about 10? <laughs> We're like doing the Sodom and Gomorrah thing. Lord, how about just four? How about that? You know, uh, They follow the lamb wherever he goes. And they are said to be redeemed from mankind. Listen to this one. As the first fruits for God and the lamb. That is really important. That the 144,000 are the first fruits of those who God is going to be harvesting down the road, okay? And then, in their mouth was no lie found, for they are blameless. Again, let's talk about 10 on earth today who are blameless. Blameless. I mean, I know in this room there are five who think they might meet that, but... <laughs> I'm such a smart... Okay, uh, according to pre-trib eschatology, the rapture view, these 144,000 are Jewish believers brought to the faith after Jesus returns and removes the church from the earth, okay? They, the 144,000, will then come into existence. So the little jokes about, I'd like to see 10 guys who do this and that, doesn't really fit into the futurist eschatology because they believe that from the nation of Israel, we will have the 144,000 come out once the church has been raptured up and out of here. Um, and, uh, but this is really problematic, and I'm just going to jump into it for a second. But 2 Thessalonians 2, 6-7 talks about the Holy Spirit being removed from the earth along with the church at that time. If that happens, I'm wondering what will be on the earth to convince the 144,000 from the nation of Israel to uh, follow the Lamb everywhere he goes and avoid uh, women, etc., etc., etc. Oh, well. Uh, Ken Gentry, a partial preterist at the time of writing the following in Before Jerusalem Fell, says that the 144,000 are Christians of Jewish extraction at that time. So, definitely coming out of the house of Israel, definitely part of the uh, Lord's work and the apostles' uh, ministerial work to reach to the house of Israel. And um, Jewish because they are in the land, what it says here. Jewish because they are from the 12 tribes of Israel, and Jewish because they are contrasted with the multitude. And in Revelation, when you have a specific amount, it's church, and it's often Jews versus the multitude is the world. So then we have to ask uh, if the fact that they are called the first fruits, what role that plays, all right? This is, this is the thing. And does it tell us they had to have been back in that day? or that they can be in a period to come. And I would suggest that this group lived in the first century by the fact that the harvesting of souls has continued since that day, and they were the first fruits chronologically, of the house of Israel, to whom Jesus came for, and that, that 144,000 group we're the ones, and that from that, the rest of the fruits of the harvest have happened for the past 2,000 years, and I suggest will continue to happen for thousands of years to come. God is harvesting, uh, but the first fruits were his, and that was the, from the house of Israel. So um, 
In other words, if this 144,000 referred to some future group living in the end times as the futurists believe, then they should be called last fruits, not first fruits. They, you can't have fruits going on now if the first fruits haven't been gathered. That doesn't work with biblical history and how uh, first fruits worked. So it tells us something else about the placement of the 144,000. Let me talk about the very biblical concept, very Jewish concept of first fruits. The word is a parchin in the Greek, and it generally applies to the first fruits of a harvest, but can apply to the first fruits of anything. And uh, that which is collected and consecrated as an offering to God uh, out of gratitude for his provision. Now, uh, the idea is when God, the blessings of God are bestowed upon us, we respond by taking a part out of it, and, in, and it's in recognition of his love and mercy, etc. Now, built within the concept of first fruits is order and rank. That's two things that are built in there, order and rank. And additionally, first fruits also implies the best of within the order and rank. So we have, we have order, rank, and quality. We have those characteristics when it comes to first fruits. So let's say that you have a grove of apple trees, and you are a Jew, and you've just, your trees have grown to maturation, and they're producing fruit. Um, you are going to give the first fruits to God. This is not the first harvest. The, the, the first fruits are not the first apple that comes off the tree. In fact, in the nation of Israel, an orchard, according to Leviticus 19, uh, 23 through 25, uh, they had to wait four cycles of fruit bearing of their orchards before they could begin to gather first fruits. Okay? So it's not the idea in fruit and horticulture of the first apple off the tree. The order and rank part applies to the first acceptable harvest as a whole and then to the best of that acceptable harvest. Not just the first apples on the tree. The best of the apples of that. That is first fruits from a biblical perspective. So Numbers 18.12 says it well, quote, All the best of the oil, not the first, and all the best of the wine and of the wheat, the first fruits of them, which shall they offer unto the Lord, them have I given them. So it's the best of the entire group. Now, when we look at the early church, okay, and we have Jews who have been under the law, who have received Christ and have suffered like no other, because you're talking about the Gentiles receiving Christ, yeah, it can be difficult. But when you talk about a Jew receiving Christ, they have gone through it. And so if you have 144,000, if this number is correct, 12,000 of the 12 tribes, and, and, and that could be interpreted differently. But if you have that, these guys have really lived the faith. They have had the law and the prophets and the oracles of God teaching them the Messiah. They have recognized the Messiah. They have accepted the Messiah. And they have followed the Messiah. They are the best of the whole harvest at that time. Is there more of the harvest? Of course. Were there other Christians? Of course there were. 
in other parts of, of Asia Minor that Paul had reached, etc. But the, the, the first fruits are his own people taken out of that own group, okay? When it comes to humans, the first fruits are the first fruits of the uh, womb of a woman. And they're always the firstborn son, and which is naturally a type and picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the purpose and symbolism is manifest even in our day and age. The person to be served first is typically somebody of the highest honor. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with thy substance and with the first fruits of all your increase. So whatever is the best of your increase, make sure that is given to him. Additionally, the first fruits, as we've defined them, very important to God. Ezekiel 48.14 uh, says, They shall not sell of it. So don't go selling your first fruits here. Neither exchange nor alienate the first fruits of the land, for it is holy unto the Lord. Uh, so, in accordance to God and His sovereign ways and His perfect knowledge, the idea of first fruits, picturing His only begotten Son, was initiated from the very beginning. Stay with me. The first fruits include, remember, concept of the best, of rank, and of order. Of, and, okay, and now we have to add, and the, the idea of a first fruits also indicates to us there's more to come. If you have something that is the, the first, the best of rank and order first, then there is more. You don't just have a first fruits. Okay. The first fruits include the notion of the best of the crop, the first of the crop, acceptable crop, and of a rank, meaning there are others to come behind that rank. When God created everything in the Garden of Eden, he said it was good. Adam and Eve were the first fruits of all humanity. That was it. They were the first fruits of all, the first Adam, as Paul calls him, and then the second Adam. And they were first and they were best. God created them. He said it's good. They were first and best, and they were the first in rank. All right? Uh, God gave them a choice, love me or choose the world. They chose their own will and way. Did God know what they would, what they would do? Of course he did. But which is why scripture says his son was slain from the foundation of the world. That was all in the plan. Did others follow in after God made man and woman together and it was good? Of course they did. They may have been the first fruits of the human race, but there was more to follow. Okay? So... All the way down to each of us today, with the first fruits of the human race failing and falling according to, you know, how we, God elects a nation now. And they're the first fruits among all nations. That nation, the nation of Israel. Those who came from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the, they are the first nation of many nations. Romans 11:16, speaking of the nation of Israel, likens them to a tree God created and elected for specific purposes. And Paul wrote to Gentile believers in Rome, and he says, For if the first fruit be holy, talking about the nation of Israel, the lump is also holy, and if the root be holy, so are the branches. He, he is referring to the nation of Israel as the first fruits of all nations. So the first fruit nation, like the first fruit couple, um, failed to live the law, except for these who followed Christ at the time, and freely choose God. Now listen, this is the key. Just as more individuals came after the first fruit couple, 
Adam and Eve, uh, filling the earth, so did other nations follow in after the first fruit nation, uh, Israel, uh, and, who failed to choose the Messiah uh, as their own. So who were they? The, the first fruit of the nation of Israel, all other nations, all other nations are the rest of the a harvest to come in. God has elected, based on his foreknowledge, what Adam and Eve and the nation of Israel would do, to use them to achieve his goodwill and pleasure, not because he respected them anymore, but because by his foreknowledge he knew what they would do. We know that God sent his only begotten son, right? His only. The first fruits of God, uh, the Father and Mary, and the only one up at this point in time to do what he did. In many ways, Jesus was the first and only in rank and order. The first and only, okay? So, first one to come from above to earth. First and only to come from above to earth. Uh, first and only born of a virgin. First and only without sin. First to uh, uh, obey the law completely. So, having been the best, the first, the first out of the order of humanity as the second Adam. First Adam blew it. First fruits of the human race. The second Adam who is spiritual first fruits of God, he became the first fruits in overcoming death and the grave by, and now listen, that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 20 says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and became the first fruits of them that slept. He's the very first one. The man Adam brought death and we were all sleeping in the grave because of him, in Sheol because of Adam, but the second Adam, the first fruits of them that slept, he's the first one to come out. Because of him, all of mankind, every rank will be resurrected. So he may be the first fruits of the grave, but the rest of us, all of mankind, will be raised. That is biblical. That is not something, if you don't understand that one, it's true. Check it out. And this is why it says in 1 Corinthians 15, 23, every man in his own order. Remember order and rank? Every person, their own order. Christ is the first fruits. Afterward, they that are Christ at his coming. Who are they? In part, they're the 144,000. That's who they are. At his coming, they are there. Who are they? Nation of Israel, the best of the nation of Israel. Come at his coming. And from his ascension on, the church, his church, comprised of individual believers, they have become the first fruits of them that slept. He, I mean, as a church, okay? Romans 8.23 calls us the first fruits of the Spirit. Did you know that? Of the first of a rank, therefore, best of all, that was the church at that time. We have the 144,000, and we have others, Gentiles too, but the 144,000. First Christ is the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. First fruits played such an important role in God and his achieving his own pleasure and will that when a person became a believer in a certain geographical area in the, Bibli in, in the New Testament times, they were known as the first fruits of that area. Let's say that nobody has ever believed in Christ from Rose Park uh, and somebody converts to Christ today. They would be called the first fruits of Rose Park. Uh, Romans 16:5, Paul giving greeting, he says, "Likewise, greet the church that is in their house. Salute my well-beloved Epinetus, who is the first fruits of Achaia unto Christ. He was the first person to come in. So first fruits plays all through uh, the scripture. It does not mean there's no fruit thereafter. Okay? 
And that's the whole, all after me saying all of that, that's what I'm trying to point out. It doesn't mean that the fruit thereafter won't be good. It doesn't mean that the good fruit of a good tree will not be uh, palatable to God and acceptable of God. This is just the order that he's arranged things in the way he loves symbolism to bring this stuff in for us. And Adam and Eve were followed by more people. The nation of Israel followed by more nations. Jesus, the first resurrected, followed by more. The first believers in an area will be followed by more believers. And the church of the, dream, of the redeemed will be followed by more. James 1.18 says it well. Of his own will, talking about God, of his own good pleasure, begat he us with the word of truth. That means according to his elect knowledge, foreknowledge, he gathered us with the word of truth that we should be, James says to his audience, a kind of first fruits of his creations. Of his creations. First fruits of his creations now. So people who believe, oh yeah, we have it, no one else does, they're screwed, we're great. They ignore the, the way God works in a harvest. Go back to the Old Testament times when they gleaned the fields. They took the first fruits. Then they went through and took the fruit that's on the uh, uh, trees. Then they went through and took the fruit that fell. Then they went through and took the rotting fruit over to the edges. They took everything, everything, that nothing would be lost. He is not a God who has a race of human beings created in his image where he collects his 144,000 and a few elect afterward and the rest are gone. He will take everything, the last piece of rotting fruit, he will gather up. Remember Jesus? It always amazes me when we read Jesus and the miracle of the loaves and the fishes. And everybody's eating, 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 and they come back and they're all done, filled, it says. And they said there's 12 baskets full left. But before they did that, Jesus said, go and collect what's remaining. Go and collect. I always thought he can magically, to use that word, radically, supernaturally, create these fish and loaves. Why do you need to say, just throw the stuff to the side? I can create more anytime I want. And if that's the way Jesus handles fish and loaves that have been replicated, why would he handle human beings made in his image differently? So consider all that. Why do we suppose that John is bringing up the 144,000 here again? We talked about him in Revelation 7. Perhaps it's an encouragement to those who are going to or were being persecuted by the beast. Perhaps it was telling them, we know Nero is killing you as a Christian. Hang on. You will soon be with the Lord in Mount Zion. Then to be fair, relative to what I've said earlier about virgins, um, Due to the content of what Jesus has said to the seven churches about the horrors of Greek uh, thought and how they would sacrifice to the prostitutes of the temple and how that, that Hellenistic idea of merging in with the Greek church and Jesus commended the churches uh, for not doing it and then he criticized the churches who had got involved. Uh, through the intercourse, so to speak, with, the, with that pagan idolatry. Um, that may be what he's talking about. It, it very well could be. So it doesn't mean actual virginity. It may not mean actual virginity. It could. If you're a biblical literalist, it would have to. But if not, and it may not refer to marital status either. 
it's doubtful that it there, there were 144,000 who had never defiled themselves with a woman ever uh, and or were not married and or, or who were not, never lied and who followed Jesus perfectly. But if we look at it in terms of having engaged in spiritual intercourse with the whore of Babylon, then it starts making some sense. That's, that's probably it. But if you're a biblical literalist, this is how they need to be. You know, it's up to you how you're, you're going to see it. Uh, then in verse 6 through 8, we'll wrap it up with this. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth and every nation, tribe, and language, and people. Of course, when I was an LDS missionary, I would pull out Revelation chapter 14, read verse 6, and say, do you know what that other gospel is? That that angel, you know who that angel is? That's an angel named Moroni. And in his army had a book of Mormon. And he's flying through the heavens saying, I have the gospel to share with everybody. That's what this is. And uh, according to LDS lore, but that is not what anyone outside the LDS church believes. Anyway, and then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim with all who dwell on the earth to every nation, tribe, language, and people. And I think the setting and timing of this angel clearly uh, tells us what John is talking about. And he, this other angel, said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Okay, so if this was Moroni flying through with another gospel, the hour of his judgment has come at that time, 1830. So uh, it had come, and that was it. That's not the context of this passage. That angel is warning and saying the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heaven and earth, not the beast, and uh, the sea and the springs of water. So I'm not sure much more needs to be said about this first angel's job. Uh, most expositors see this as a reference to the message of salvation given in the last days as a hope of saying, hey, get ready, the judgment has come. That's all, that all it is. We know that Jesus said this in Matthew 24, 14, too. So, uh, and then one other guy wrote, uh, the end of the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world as a witness to all the nations, echoing Christ's words. That was what this angel was bringing. So, uh, let's see. It's interesting, too, that Paul, when we read the New Testament, he says, and this is a quote, that their faith is spoken of through the whole world. So where the LDS would say that this angel is preaching the, go the gospel to the whole world now, John, I mean, Paul says in Romans that their faith is spoken of through the whole world, and meaning at that time, everybody had gotten wind of what was going on that needed to, to hear it. In his epistle to the Colossians, Paul said that the word of truth and the gospel which had come to them had gone to the entire world. That's in Colossians 1.6. Paul says it went everywhere already then. People say, we're just waiting for the gospel to get to the whole world before the end comes. And Paul says it three times here that it had occurred in his day. Uh, then again, verse 23 of Colossians 1, he wrote that the gospel had been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. That's a quote from Paul in that day. So the people who say it still has to be preached, wake up. Not true. And devout Jews from every nation and heaven even heard the gospel in their own languages on the day of Pentecost. And that's how it was put. Peter said this is the fulfillment of what was prophesied. Okay.
and the whole world, by the way, in the days of, uh, of Caesar Augustus on down to the other emperors was always the Roman Empire. That is exactly what it referred to. And you can cross-reference that if you want to check it with Luke 11.28, Acts 24.5, Romans 16.25. Eusebius wrote about it, and that's what uh, Matthew 24.14. Then John adds, finally, last thing, another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. Uh, what is unique about this verse, it is the first time Babylon is mentioned in the book of Revelation. We've never read that word before. What do we know about Babylon from the text? She is called uh, great. Uh, she was influential and she made all nations drink the wine. The wine of what? Our answer gives us another indicator of her as it tells us that the wine was her sexual immorality. In other words, she was lawless in the way she was. Not, and she is, I think, personifi a personification here, not a woman. Uh, we'll talk about that. So who is Babylon here in Revelation? Well, this is a division, and we're going to handle that division when we get to chapter 16, 18 better. Up until now, we'll just say that some people believe it's Rome. Other people believe it's Jerusalem as being this Babylon that has influenced the world with its wine of seductions. So we'll stop there. Questions, comments, insights by Patricio or Vanna White. Anybody? Hello. I am one of the 140... We have, okay, we have Michael on line one. We're going to take that, and then we'll get, to, we'll get to our other guests on line one. Michael, go ahead, my brother. All right. Hey, Sean, how you doing? Good. Welcome. Good, good. Thanks. Hey, it's nice to be able to call in. Hey, I had uh, a question and a comment. Couldn't the 144,000 be the Himalayan monks? <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, yeah, great show. Hey, I wanted to uh, just leave a comment. You know, it's, um, it's pretty amazing. It, first of all, you make it so clear cut. And you, you say things just so different from anyone else. I mean, it's just it's amazing. It brings clarity. So I really appreciate all the hard work that you put in on uh, doing these shows every Sunday. Thanks, Michael. Um, I wanted to just make a comment here. You know, um, I think it's kind of hilarious because... We have 195 different countries in this world. We have over 7,000 different languages. And yet, God chose to write revelations that was supposed to be for future people 2,000 or 3,000 years later in Hebrew hybalism. Wow. Hyperbol hyperbolism, you know. To, to me, that just kind of seems a little comical. I mean, and. Yeah. Considering the fact that all these other nations, except for the Hebrews at that time, didn't understand the way that they spoke, their culture, their language, yeah. their way of identifying things, like all the stars will fall from heaven. Yeah. I just think it's kind of funny, you know? It's a fantastic point, you know? A fantastic yeah. point. Come on, you guys. Because, yeah, because, like, you know, you know, I'm sure there's Christians all over the place, you know, and, and I, I just don't see how they would be able to read that. Yeah. And then what about all the nations that don't even have the Bible? Yeah, yeah. You know, Such and then, not insight. to mention, uh, since uh, 
Nero, the persecution there and everything, the Roman Catholic um, papacy and everything took over and didn't even have any English translations of the Bible for people until 15, what is it, 1530s? About that. So, so, so what about all the people in between then? How would they have access to Revelation? Uh, another to, to excellent receive that point. warning. Excellent points, Michael. You, and that, that's why I'm so yeah. glad we're taking calls now. Yeah. <laughs> that's all I had to comment. It's really great. Michael's there, in Sweden. Tell, uh, tell your brothers and sisters here where in Sweden you're at with your family, Michael. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, we live outside of Stockholm. It's called Linköping um, in Sweden. So, And in 20 minutes, we got New Year. So I want to wish all my brothers and sisters there at campus Happy New Year. And uh, I hope everyone has a good, safe night tonight. And, Sean, stay away from the tequila, okay? I'll try. Thanks, brother. <laughs> okay. God bless you. Love you, Ben. All right. Bye-bye. Did he say wakila or tequila? Okay. All right. Just curious. Anything else, you guys? Oh, I'm sorry. Go, John. Yeah. Uh, this Bible says... Uh, for they are spiritually undefiled, pure as virgins. Spiritually undefiled. Spiritually undefiled. Huh. The 144,000. So that could be almost any of us. It could be anyone who follows Christ, right? Yeah. I'm curious if that, what version is that, uh, John? The Living Bible. Parallel Living Bible. Oh, wait, there's something else. Ray. Vanna, we need you to be on your game. This is just a sod comment. Uh, I mentioned to you in pursuing foolish genealogy that my great-grandfather received a patriarchal blessing and he was numbered among the 144,000. <laughs> now, the nail in the coffin, he was also a polygamist. <laughs> Whoa! Boom, boom, boom. Excellent comment from Ray. That's really funny, Ray. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Over in the far back corner. Good job, Patrick. Moving like a deer. The 144,000 could also be all of those who followed Christ. Ah, like the full number. The full number, yeah. because they are... Uh, pure through Christ. Right. Ah, very good. Excellent insight. Yeah, it's, a, it's, sorry, it's just like a representation, you know, just a big number. It doesn't mean it's 144,000, right. but Even. it could be. You never know. It's hard to tell. Whatever the Holy Spirit teaches you. So. Thank you, Patrick. Anyone else? You know, Vanna never takes the mic and talks, Patrick. I'm just kidding. That's okay. I'm just kidding, Patrick. Just kidding. I know. And you know what Michael said was such a good point. I'm going to add this final thing. Uh, we're talking, uh, as I get ready to meet with James White, uh, talking about uh, he's going to bring ideas of the Trinity up in our conversation. And, and it's really interesting because if you were going to understand the Nicene Creed, the way it was written in the Greek, um, you would have to understand uh, Aristotle's thinking. You really have to understand Aristotle's understanding of things in, his, in the explanation of God there. And then we know that Aristotle, his thinking has been shown to be defective compared to uh, Newton. 
and Newtonian thinking replaced uh, uh, Aristotelian thinking. And so then you would have to start to understand how Newton thinks uh, to understand how Aristotle thinks. And then we see that uh, Einstein came in and the theory of relativity trumps Newton. And so we have a problem there with trying to understand and define God. And now they say that even Einstein's theory of relativity is passé, and we've come to string theory. And so it, it, this really becomes heavy when we start be becoming so certain that we can understand clearly what was being written back then in our day and age. These 2,000 years later, it, it just was written to them. The Spirit moves us to the things that are important for us, but to take it so dogmatically and make sure we have every I dotted and every T crossed, this seems like it's uh, laughable, kind of like what Michael had to say. All right, you guys, be safe uh, tonight. Let's pray and get out of here. Lord, uh, we love you and seek you, and we want to definitely be on the uh, course of truth and, and right and have our, have our facts straight with you. And, but not to become legalists and lawyers and, and dividing over uh, jots and tittles in the law, but to uh, be open to the Spirit, as Patrick mentioned. Let the Spirit move us. Let's read the text. Let's see what we can decide from it and then move on to being Christians, which is the point, to go forward in faith and uh, to live our lives as people of faith and people who seek to love as you did. And that's the goal. So help us to move into uh, tonight, a big celebration here around the world and, uh, and also into the, the next year to have renewed uh, minds, the eternal perspective, uh, realizing that this life is but a vapor, a breath on glass and will pass and that you have a greater view that you want those who are yours to seek and follow. And so we uh, thank you for uh, all you do and are sorry for the many, many, many times we don't even see your participation in our lives, in our ungratitude and, and all that. So help us to be humble and move forward and, and uh, have that eternal view of things, Lord. Yeah, we pray for this and for people who aren't on the list before me, uh, Lisa and Diana and everybody else who struggles and is suffering and our grace, our little friend with the child with cancer and her family and all the people and just be with them make yourself known and help us now in jesus name amen, amen.